Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 13 on April 2nd, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Stephen Sweeney, board chair of the Air Medical Memorial. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from episode 12 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I did not receive any feedback on episode 12 this week. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. As I have done in the past, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, to be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email me or call me if it is not. I've been trying to identify all Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. I did post up a few more pages this week. I cannot link to Facebook group pages, and therefore, if you are thinking of putting your program on Facebook, do use a fan page rather than a group. Contact me if you have any questions about this. I am going to be rolling out a sponsorship program for the Air Medical Today podcast this month. I am looking for both corporate and individual sponsors, so watch for announcements and a new page on the Air Med Today website. To continue with the news and information and the podcast, I will need financial support to do so. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. The National Transportation Safety Board investigators were back this week at the site in Brownsville, Tennessee, where the hospital wing helicopter crashed Thursday morning, March 25th. Paul Cox, the NTSB senior aviation investigator, is heading up the investigative crew that includes the FAA and officials from the engine and helicopter manufacturers. No official determination has been made on the cause of the crash. There may have been thunderstorms in the area, and one witness reported seeing a lightning streak and a fireball in the direction of the crash. Investigators will be looking at maintenance, operations, and training of the company and crew. The helicopter was well-equipped with recording devices, and investigators are very optimistic about their ability to get information from the devices. 
The crash of the hospital wing helicopter is the fourth fatal incident in the last six months of a medical transport helicopter, according to the National Transportation Safety Board. Hospital Wing conducted more than 49,000 accident-free missions and earned numerous safety awards before the crash. The other three medical helicopter crashes are, on October 5, 2010, a Southwest Medevac helicopter crashed 23 miles northwest of El Paso, Texas. The helicopter was on a training mission with the Army to simulate transporting injured Army personnel using night vision goggles. Two paramedics and the pilot died. On November 14, 2009, Mountain Lifelight crashed near Doyle, California, killing the pilot and two medical crew members. The incident is under investigation. On November 25, 2009, an Omniflight helicopter crashed near Georgetown, South Carolina, killing the pilot, a paramedic, and a flight nurse. The helicopter was flying during a thunderstorm. The report showed no mechanical failure. A public memorial was held this past Wednesday morning for hospital wing crew members pilot Doug Phillips and flight nurses Cindy Parker and Misty Brogdon. Hundreds of friends, family, and fellow medical professionals filled the church's sanctuary to pay their final respects. Individual funerals were also held last Sunday for Cindy Parker and Misty Brogdon. There were articles critical of the air medical industry, and I bring up two since some of these points are very interesting, even though we have heard many of the points before. Christine Negroni, the transportation reporter for the New York Times, said in an article this week that the crash in Tennessee is another tragic reminder of the crisis in medical aviation. While the crash happened shortly before 7 o'clock a.m., the bulk of the flight occurred during what is considered the backside of the clock, the hours between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., or 2200 and 600. Nearly half of all EMS helicopter crashes take place on the backside of the clock. This statistic comes from the Comprehensive Medical Aviation Services Database, or CMAS, which was compiled by Dr. Patrick Vellette and Mrs. Negroni. Fatigue is a pervasive problem in these accidents, according to Dr. Vellette, a commercial pilot and a former EMS pilot. The situation seems to be getting worse. He said that in just the last eight years, there have been 48 accidents that occurred on the backside of the clock. The hospital wing aircraft had already delivered the patient and was returning to base. There was bad weather in the area, and the flight was being conducted under visual flight rules without the assistance of enhanced visibility instruments. According to the CMAS database, these are the consistently recurring factors in helicopter medevac accidents. Since 1987, nearly half of the EMS helicopter accidents occurred either at night or in weather that obstructed the pilot's vision. CMAS statistics also show that people are twice as likely to die in limited visibility accidents as those occurring in good weather during the day. Only a small portion of the medevac helicopters are equipped with enhanced visibility systems, however. The EMS helicopter industry has boomed from a few hospitals in Colorado in 1972 to a multi-million dollar business, which has operated nearly a half million flights in 2009. 
According to Ms. Negroni, this phenomenal growth has been based on a disturbing business model. Fly the helicopters as inexpensively as possible, meaning one pilot and a minimum of safety equipment, even though these are inherently more hazardous missions. As one EMS pilot told the author, if they knew what I know, even the nurse and paramedic wouldn't get on board. In a study of turbine engine airplane accidents, a noted aviation research company, Robert Brilling Associates of Florida, concluded that single pilot flights are riskier than those with two pilots. The statistics show the risk of a fatal accident is 3.7 times greater with a single pilot. In publishing these findings, AOPA Pilot Magazine wrote, single pilot operations create higher workloads and greater demands on pilot skill when the chips are down and the stress levels run high. Flying a helicopter is not like flying an airplane. The pilot is busy from start to finish. To an already higher workload and often under time pressure, the EMS pilot has additional concerns, a 24 7 flight schedule, a lack of weather information for the route of destination, operations in and out of non-standard landing zones, including rooftops, highways and parking lots, and flights that take them through obstacles and obstructions. Bringing complicated medical equipment and highly trained professionals to the skies is already an expensive undertaking. Most EMS helicopter companies are businesses with bottom lines to consider. Often a hospital contract will go to the company that offers the lowest bid, which is why additional equipment and doubling of pilots is such a hard concept to sell. It is imperative that the industry equip all EMS helicopters for reduced visibility conditions and put two qualified pilots in the cockpit to fly them. It's expensive, but once again, according to Ms. Negroni, investigators have been called to the scene of a crash that is a tragic reminder of the alternative. In the other article by Christopher Mag in Popular Mechanics, he said that the medical helicopter industry has been tripled in size over the last two decades, expanding from 200 helicopters in 1988 to 668 in 2008. While the pilots and crew endeavor to save lives, they also put their own at risk, such as flying to the scenes of accidents in often remote, dark locations and landing not on pads, but in fields and on streets. Though the industry is the most dangerous sector of the commercial aviation, it operates with some of the least safety regulation. According to Mr. Mag, no one knows yet what caused the accident in Tennessee. The National Transportation Safety Board won't release its preliminary report until 10 days after the crash. But according to local news reports, there was a thunderstorm moving across eastern Tennessee when the helicopter went down about an hour before sunrise. The sheriff of Hayward County, where the crash happened, told a local TV news reporter that when he heard about the crash, his first thought was to wonder why anybody would fly a helicopter in such bad conditions. The author says if the pilot flew into bad weather on a dark night, causing him to lose sight of the ground or inadvertent flight into instrument flight rule conditions, the crash may well be the fault of the pilot. Mr. Mag goes on to say that there are broader forces at work. 
helicopter ambulances have crashed 149 times since 1998, killing 140 people and seriously injuring dozens more. An industry created to save lives actually has the highest rate of fatal accidents in all of commercial aviation. In fact, working aboard a medical helicopter is the most dangerous profession in America with a higher risk of death than fishermen, steelworkers, or loggers. If the safety board determines that weather did play a role, then this latest crash fits the pattern of fatal accidents that has plagued medical helicopters since the 1970s. The board's first report on the crash epidemic, published in 1988, found that most air ambulance accidents happen when the pilot can't see, either because of weather or dark night conditions. Weather-related accidents are the most common and most serious type of accident experienced by EMS helicopters. Every study since then has found the same pattern. The FAA has known for 22 years why medical helicopters kill so many people. For 21 of those years, no safety standards were introduced to rectify the problem. In 2009, the FAA began a years-long process of writing mandatory rules for the medical helicopter industry. The first rule should be requiring all air ambulances to be equipped with night vision goggles, which would help helicopter pilots see on dark nights and avoid bad weather. Next, the FAA should require terrain awareness systems, also mandatory on all airliners for each medical helicopter. The systems measure the distance to the ground and warn pilots to pull up when they fly too close. The agency also should require all medical helicopters to have flight data recorders to help crash investigators figure out what went wrong, improve training, and avoid future accidents. Finally, the FAA must get serious about the weather. According to early reports, the closest weather station to the farmer's field where this helicopter crashed was at a regional airport 23 miles away. That's a lot of room for intense storm cells to hide in. For years, the FAA has investigated the idea of building more weather stations to track low-altitude storm fronts in rural areas away from airports, which would give air traffic controllers the tools they need to detect small, violent storms and help helicopter pilots steer clear. Hospital Wing, like other air medical programs, is not required to operate a flight control center where qualified dispatchers help pilots decide whether it's safe to fly by using sophisticated weather tracking to help pilots avoid bad weather. For years, the National Transportation Safety Board has urged the FAA to make medical helicopters safer by requiring all companies to have such control centers. The author ends by saying it should do so now. In healthcare reform news, uh, shortly after the House of Representatives passed the healthcare reform bill, President Obama said that this proves we are still a people capable of doing big things. Obama defended the reform package as an end to the status quo, but not the beginning of government run healthcare. He cited an end to insurance denials for pre-existing conditions and stronger consumer protections as example of provisions in the reform package that would benefit ordinary Americans. He called it a victory for all Americans and also a victory for common sense. On Tuesday, March 30th, President Obama signed the last piece of the legislation to enact the U.S. health care overhaul that also included changes designed to make colleges more affordable. 
The bill signed eliminated provisions in the Senate version of the health care legislation that benefits specific states and other special interest items. The House passed that version on March 21st with the understanding that the companion measure making changes to it would become law. The fixes to the Senate version also reduce a tax on high-end insurance plans and add a new levy on investment income. Republicans say that they will move to repeal the overall package and replace it with a less ambitious program. A CNN Opinion Research Corporation poll released this week showed 56% of those surveyed disapproving of the new law, with 42% approving it. The survey of 935 voters taken March 25th through 28th has a margin of error of plus or minus 3 percentage points. Last month, Arizona, as part of its effort to close a $2.6 billion budget gap, became the first state to eliminate funding for its children's health insurance program. Lawmakers decided to make deep cuts in Medicaid as well, kicking 300,000 adults off the rolls as of January. But five days after Republican Governor Jan Brewer signed it into law, President Obama signed the new health law. That had the effect of voiding Arizona's effort. The Federal Health Care Act bars states from lowering eligibility requirements for either CHIP or Medicaid over the next several years. Otherwise, they risk losing Medicaid funding altogether. Because Arizona's cuts hadn't officially taken effect, state lawmakers now have to cancel them to comply with federal requirements. That will leave a $400 million hole in their new budget. All told, Arizona officials estimate the federal law will cost the state $11.6 billion over the next 10 years. Medicaid is already one of the largest expenses for the states, and it has been growing rapidly. Medicaid costs are shared by the federal government and the states, and on average the government pays 55%, while states pay the rest. Last year's stimulus law bumped the federal share up an additional 6%. That money runs out at the end of the year, but President Obama's budget would extend it for another six months. The new law sounds even more generous. Currently, Medicaid eligibility is determined state by state, with each taking slightly different factors into account. The new law makes it simple. Everyone with income under 133% of the poverty line qualifies. Feds will pick up 100% of the tab for three years for people who become eligible under the new rules, with the share slowly decreasing to 90% by 2020. But there's a catch. States will still have to pay 45% of the cost of each person who signs up, who would have been eligible under the old rules. Many other states, nearly all of which are facing budget shortfalls, are similarly concerned about how much the health law will end up costing them. States that have traditionally offered lower levels of coverage, such as Arizona, will no longer have the option of cutting health spending in tough times. State-run exchanges are one of the cornerstones of the new law. These will be marketplaces where individuals and small businesses sign up for private insurance plans. The idea is that they'll work like travel websites such as Orbitz or Expedia, giving individuals and human resource managers their pick among several competing plans. 
But the exchanges are not simple one-stop shopping tools. They will also determine how much government assistance each person is entitled to. The federal government will subsidize private insurance for individuals who earn up to 400% of the poverty level on a sliding scale. The exchanges will determine how much each person should get. The exchanges also will figure out whether an individual, even though he or she may be applying for private coverage, actually meets the requirements for CHIP or Medicaid. That means states need to get often outmoded database systems talking to each other. Companies such as AT&T, Caterpillar, and John Deere say the end of a tax break on prescription drugs may cause them to have to drop employees' drug coverage altogether. In 2003, when President Bush and Congress were finalizing plans for the new Medicare prescription drug plan, one thing worried them. They feared that once the new plan kicked in, companies that offered drug coverage to retired employees might be tempted to cancel coverage and offload those workers into the Medicare plan, costing the government even more money. So Congress started looking for ways to encourage private employees to stick with their private drug plans and decided to subsidize drug coverage. The government would cover 28% of the company's cost for a plan, and at the same time, that company could deduct the entire cost from its taxes as it had always done. It was like a government giving you money to pay your mortgage and also letting you write off the mortgage interest. Under the newly passed health care law, companies still get the subsidy for offering drug coverage, but they no longer get a tax deduction as well. The administration says that this will add $4.5 billion to government coffers, but it will come at the expense of companies like Caterpillar, John Deere, and AT&T, which say it will lose as much as $1 billion down the road. Within the new health care reform legislation is a directive for the Department of Health and Human Services to establish the Graduate Nurse Education Demonstration, which will name up to five hospitals nationally to receive federal funding to train greater number of advanced practice nurses. The subcategories are clinical nurse specialists, nurse practitioners, certified registered nurse anesthetists, and certified nurse midwives. Under the demonstration program, hospitals must partner and share the federal funds with at least one qualified nursing education program and at least two community-based health centers or clinics. The programs must increase their total number of nurses educated through the programs as compared to a baseline of the average number of graduates over the past five years. The four-year program will receive $50 million annually through Medicare and then result in the creation of a report to Congress on its results in 2017. In other news, Air Methods Corporation has presented a $100,000 pledge to the Medevac Foundation International as part of its continuing commitment to advance air medical safety through greater research and education. The Air Methods Donation will help support implementation of the Medevac Foundation projects, which include the 2010 Research and Education Grants, the recipients of which will be named in June 2010. Grant projects receiving funding in 2009 included research on the use of ultrasound stroke treatment in helicopter transport and studies assessing cognitive fatigue in pilots and air medical crews, among others. 
also the Family Grant, which provides financial assistance to families following a fatal air medical crash, and the Children's Scholarship Fund, which supports higher education for the children who have lost a parent or guardian as a result of an air medical accident. The pledge was secured during the recent Helicopter Association International's Hella Expo 2010 in Houston, Texas. Air Methods Corporation was also in the news as one of the top performing stocks in terms of price gain over the last 30 days in a story published March 31st. The stock has posted a sizable 29.29% gain in price in the last month. Over the same time, the S&P 500 index has returned around a 4.9% gain. The public air services industry as a whole saw an 8.2% gain, so in the last 30 days, the Air Methods Corporation has outperformed its industry as a whole by 257.2%. The Federal Aviation Administration said Friday it will lift its ban on airline pilots taking antidepressants under certain conditions. On a case-by-case basis, the FAA will allow patients to take one of four antidepressants if they have satisfactorily been treated with the drug for 12 months. Acceptable medications listed by the regulator are Eli Lilly's Prozac, Pfizer's Zoloft, Forest Laboratories' Celexa, and Lexapro, and their generic equivalents. The National Transportation Safety Board adopted a study and concluded that small aircraft that had glass cockpits were not safer and had a higher fatal accident rate than similar aircraft with conventional instruments. The safety study, which was adopted unanimously by the safety board, was initiated more than a year ago to determine if light airplanes equipped with digital primary flight displays or glass cockpits were inherently safer than those equipped with conventional instruments. The study, which looked at the accident rates of over 8,000 small piston-powered airplanes manufactured between 2002 and 2006, found that those equipped with glass cockpits had higher fatal accident rate than similar aircraft with conventional instruments. As a result, the NTSB has proposed safety recommendations to the Federal Aviation Administration and has requested the agency to respond within 90 days in addressing the actions taken or in what it intends to take to implement the board's recommendations. Forced to make difficult budget decisions due to a dramatic drop in tax revenue collections, Mayor Charmian Tavares has proposed to eliminate Maui County, Hawaii's only helicopter ambulance service at the County Council's Budget and Finance Committee hearings last week. It was met with very strong opposition by council members and residents. Transportation Department Director Don Medieras said use of the helicopter had dropped by about 50% since a second fixed-wing airplane medical transport company began servicing the county's islands a few years ago. The helicopter does not handle as many transports as it used to and is instead focusing more on trauma and rescue operations. The county is facing a $56 million budget gap for services and programs in fiscal year 2011, which could be increased by another $17.5 million, 
if the legislature decides to take the county's share of the transient accommodations tax or hotel tax as the state battles its own budget woes. A private company, American Medical Response, which provides all road ambulances in the county, contracts with Hawaii Air Ambulance for the Air Ambulance Program and supplies the onboard medics. Since the county is a mixture of remote islands with mountainous, watery, and forested regions, a medical transport helicopter is essential, said American Medical Response Maui manager Kurt Morimoto. The county council has until May 31st to come up with changes it wants in the mayor's budget proposal. Members must approve a balanced budget that takes effect July 1st. Medieras said the state really should be the one to pay for the entire program since the health department is responsible for ambulance services statewide and collects the bills from insurance companies and patients with flights costing about $3,000 each. The legislature created the helicopter ambulance in 2003 after two years of requests by state and county officials and residents. The announcement of the proposed cut, which would take effect June 30th, also happens to come just less than a month after Maui Memorial Medical Center broke ground on a new $3 million helipad to accommodate the county's only helicopter ambulance service. Maui Memorial Medical Center Chief Executive Officer Wesley Lowe said he was very surprised to see the proposed air ambulance program budget cut and lobbied against it. He said now that the hospital is doing heart surgery and will also perform life-saving angioplasty procedures in the next six months, which will increase the number of patients using the helicopter, will likely increase dramatically. Two companies, AirMed and Hawaii Air Ambulance, provide airplane flights. Only one of the providers, though, AirMed, has a plane based on Maui. None of the planes are headquartered on the county's other islands. A passerby captured video of an orange medical helicopter taking off from the scene of a fatal QEW crash on Friday, March 26, in Ontario, Canada. You can view the video at the link in the show notes. The accident happened shortly before 7 a.m. when a car plowed into the back of a tractor trailer that was stopped on the shoulder. They were the only two vehicles involved. An air ambulance came to take the victim away, but the individual died of their injuries at the scene. As a result, the patient wasn't loaded into the helicopter. When lifting off, however, the helicopter's rotor clipped some wires. The helicopter wasn't damaged, although it will require repairs, and the helicopter will be back in service on Saturday. The two pilots and two paramedics on board at the time suffered no injuries. The government of Newfoundland and Labrador announced on Thursday, March 25th, that the current service offered from St. Anthony will be transferred to Happy Valley Goose Bay and will include a second medical flight specialist team. Jerome Kennedy, Minister of Health and Community Services, stated during the announcement, residents of our province need to have an air ambulance program that is reliable and ensures patients are transported in a timely manner to access health care services. The air ambulance service will service all of Labrador and northern Newfoundland. Minister Kennedy said, based on the review, we believe the movement of the air ambulance program to a central location will provide timely response 
for residents. Currently, the air ambulance service in St. Anthony, without a second medical flight specialist team, employs 12 people. The town of Happy Valley Goose Bay is welcoming the decision. Stan Oliver, deputy mayor, said being centrally located will greatly enhance the care given for Labradorians by cutting flight times dramatically. Between 500 and 600 people gathered in the community of St. Anthony last Friday morning, however, to protest the news that it would no longer be the Providence's second location for air ambulance services. The government had announced an $8.7 million expenditure to fund the replacement of the existing aircraft in St. John's, the development of a second medical flight team added to the air ambulance program in the Providence, and the relocation of the current area ambulance from St. Anthony to Happy Valley Goose Bay. Ernest Sims, mayor of St. Anthony, said the consultant's report was not thorough enough and that this really affects St. Anthony badly. Economically, people's lives have been ruined. According to the report by WJD Consulting Incorporated, since 2006, of the 3,910 patients using the service out of St. Anthony, 2,201 were from places other than the Northern Peninsula and Labrador. The other locations included St. John's, Burren, Gander, Grand Falls, and Deer Lake. The town also held a second rally last Saturday to protest the loss. Government officials said the move was precipitated by the death of a worker at the Iron Ore Company of Canada mine near Labrador City. The man died more than a week ago after he fell from some scaffolding. It took 11 hours for the nearest air ambulance to arrive, and the man was dead by the time it got there. However, Mayor Sims said the move was political payback because the St. Anthony area voted against the government in a recent election. He said about 1,500 people attended the rally on Saturday night, and he's still hopeful the decision to move the service can be reversed. HealthNet unveiled their new helicopter this Thursday in Charleston, West Virginia. The EC-135 P2 Plus is made by American Eurocopter, and Metro Aviation completed the medical configuration. The new helicopter is equipped with an XM weather radar, a ground proximity warning system, SkyConnect satellite tracking, night vision goggle compatible lighting and avionics, and other advanced gear. HealthNet helicopters carry about 3,500 patients each year and was founded in 1986. According to a recent FAA preliminary report, a University of Utah AirMed helicopter had a bird strike last weekend. One of their Bell 407 helicopters made contact with a bird that hit the windscreen while they were taking off near Ogden, Utah. Damage was listed as minor and no one was hurt. The plan to cut helicopter cover for the southeast region in Ireland from 24 hours to 12 hours by 2013 has sparked furious protest and prompted the new Wexford-based junior minister, Sean Connick, to publicly clash with Transport Minister Noel Dempsey this week. The Irish Independent has learned that a draft memo to the Irish government drawn up by the Department of Transport in January acknowledged the risk of having no helicopter cover in the region from 9.30 p.m. to 9.30 a.m. 
It said there could be a 40-minute delay in getting helicopter cover from the 24-hour rescue helicopter bases in Sligo, Shannon, and Dublin. The memo concedes that not all people at risk of drowning off the southeast coast will be rescued within the so-called golden hour when medical treatment is required to give best chance of survival. It states that at least 93% of the people who require the helicopter rescue service will be reached within the hour, adding this should overcome most local objections. In the past four years, 64 people have been saved by a helicopter off the southeast coast at night. If 7% of these people were not reached within an hour, that would equate to four people whose lives might have been put at risk by a daylight-only service. Around 24,000 people have already signed up on a Facebook campaign against the planned cutbacks, and an online petition has already gathered 6,700 signatures. The Department of Transport said it had no comment to make when contacted about the draft memo drawn up by its officials. In a follow-up to a report in an earlier podcast, Sam Kennedy, the Scottish Ambulance Service General Manager, who had been investigated over claims he demanded an air ambulance to fly him home from a business trip, has allegedly quit this week. He had faced the sack after the allegations he tried to use the aircraft like a taxi at the end of January. Mr. Kennedy was on the island of Barra for a meeting when he is alleged to have called for an air ambulance because his scheduled flight was delayed, but staff refused to take him back to Glasgow and a complaint was lodged. An ambulance spokesman said, we can confirm Sam Kennedy has resigned and is no longer employed by the service, but Kennedy denied he had resigned and insisted that he and his wife, Marcia, a former ambulance services training officer, were furious at the claims. An ambulance services insider, however, said the ambulance investigation was reaching its conclusion when Kennedy resigned. From Africa, the Uganda Ambulance Services Group has appealed to the government to set up an emergency fund for airlifting accident victims for immediate medical attention. The organization's chief executive, Eric Walford, said many victims die at the accident scene and others on the way to the medical facilities because they lack immediate medical attention and quick transport. Walford made the appeal during a mock demonstration on airlifting accident victims. Police statistics show that in the Great Lakes region of Uganda, there are the highest number of people dying in road accidents and that the high traffic on major roads has made it difficult for ambulances to transport victims to hospitals in time. The Federal Aviation Administration has begun research and development pilot aimed at helping the agency detect and react to hackers before they have a chance to attack FAA systems, both IBM and the FAA announced this past Tuesday. The pilot makes use of recently released IBM software called Infosphere Streams, which was developed in conjunction with the Department of Defense and can perform real-time analytics on heavy throughput data streams of up to millions of events or messages per second. FAA security analysts are swamped on a daily basis with a massive volume of security information coming from the FAA's firewalls, intrusion detection systems, wireless systems, as well as data feeds from other agencies and commercial security services. 
The FAA is no stranger to publicized attacks. In recent years, they have included theft of personal information on 48,000 former and current employees, a takeover of the FAA's domain controllers, and a viral infection that forced the FAA to shut down systems in Alaska. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. Today I am interviewing Stephen Sweeney, board chair of the Air Medical Memorial. Stephen works as a marketing, creative, and art director in the Denver metropolitan area. He has worked in the architectural and engineering, aviation, and healthcare industries, including acting as investor relations manager at Air Methods in the early 1990s. Stephen grew up around the Flight for Life program in Denver and made many friends with the members of the team. His interest in the air medical industry began with a tour of the Flight for Life program back in 1973 at the age of five. Both Stephen and his brother Kevin lost a friend, Sandy Sigmund, when their Flight for Life helicopter went down on Huron Peak in Colorado in July 1994. Stephen's brother also lost friends and colleagues when Air Life Denver crashed in Littleton, Colorado in December 1997. Kevin worked at AirLife for nine years as a dispatcher. Those two crashes inspired the brothers to start developing the concept of a national memorial honoring the air medical industry. After eight separate crashes and the loss of 24 air medical crew members in 2008, Stephen started the Air Medical Memorial Group on Facebook in January of 2009 to create awareness within the industry and gain support from the friends, family members, and co-workers of those lost in the line of duty. Stephen lives in Littleton, Colorado with his wife and two children. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen, and thank you for taking the time to be with us. Well, I'm glad to be here, Ed, and uh, glad to be on Air Medical today. Well, thank you. Stephen, you had a huge announcement on Tuesday, March 30th, uh, about Denver being the host city for the Air Medical Memorial and Park, and that you had land donated for it. Tell us about that announcement. Well, we're really excited about this. Um, About a year ago, when I started the group, Uh, we weren't quite sure where we would end up. We had a vision for the memorial uh, and a long list of host cities and potential sites and things that were important to us and family members of uh, air medical accident victims. And uh, we found a piece of land that we fell in love with before we knew that we could get it. Uh, It Mm -hmm. met all of our needs, and uh, we were very glad to uh, be able to announce Uh, last week, that we are, in fact, uh, going to be able to put a memorial on this site. That's wonderful. So you actually had scoped out this land even before you knew it was available? We did. uh, As uh, part of a committee that looked here locally in Denver at potential sites, um, we had identified a open parcel uh, southwest of Denver and went to look at it. And it wasn't quite what we were looking for. Um, but at that time, we, we took a look to the south and found this wonderful piece of land and uh, just investigated it, found out who owned it, um, 
and thankfully it was zoned appropriately uh, and is a, a site that's going to work for what we're looking to do. Great. Well, where exactly is the site located in the Denver area? It's uh, just southwest of the Denver metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in unincorporated Jefferson County uh, near C-470 and South Kipling Street. I see. And then what were you looking at in considering different sites? Well, one of the things that we wanted to do was uh, find a site that was um, uh, reflective, scenic, uh, peaceful, a place where people could come and uh, remember and pay their respects. Mm -hmm. We had other re uh, requirements or other considerations that included uh, being centrally located. We did hear from uh, our supporters early on that uh, when you're traveling from the West Coast, uh, if you're handicapped, if you're elderly, you know, getting to the East Coast, and I'm sure the same situation going from the East Coast to the West Coast can be uh, quite arduous. So we really concentrated on trying to find something uh, centrally located. And it's uh, not that far. I mean, Denver obviously is a huge hub, so that's got to be a consideration for people flying in too, correct? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, we did want to find a site that was in close proximity to uh, hopefully nonstop flights uh, from anywhere in the U.S., and I think we found that in Denver. How big actually is the parcel of land? And, and I, I didn't see in the announcement, but can you talk about who actually donated it? Absolutely. Uh, the parcel that uh, was donated to the group is about uh, six acres in size, uh, so definitely wow. large enough to create uh, the park that we envision as well as uh, an appropriate site for the memorial itself. And uh, the land was donated by uh, Alan Fishman uh, as part of the Jefferson Corporate Center uh, development in southwest Denver. I see. Wow. I, I didn't realize it was uh, that big, so that gives you a lot uh, to work with. Well, and initially we were looking for a site where we could uh, find the appropriate place for the memorial, but we didn't initially have plans to create a park. Uh, and so that really grew out of the available uh, land that, that was donated to us. I see. Tell us what it looks like. Uh, are there some pictures on the website of the... We, we do have a conceptual site planned on the website, mm -hmm. as well as a photograph uh, of the undeveloped land as you see it today. Okay. And uh, we, we anticipate uh, being able to put um, uh, a perspective drawing uh, from the group that's doing the primary design, uh, hopefully later this month uh, or into June. And have that available then for people. Correct. Well, uh, with that concept. Uh, I know from the announcement you talk about a granite wall inscribed with the names of all the honorees uh, and a sculpture. Tell us about those and then also what else is going to be on the site as far as the park. Okay. Well, what we envision for the park is uh, a fully landscaped six acres uh, that will include um, park grass, uh, natural grasses, uh, some drought-tolerant uh, landscaping, mm -hmm. and some mature trees. Uh, there will be some paths uh, that wind through this area, including a path that will go up to a ridge that sits just to the west 
uh, of the memorial, but definitely within the area that uh, was donated to the group. And this ridge will allow people to uh, overlook the memorial as well as the open space uh, to the south of the site and uh, Denver sits to the northwest. So definitely some, some nice panoramic views. Mm -hmm. At the center of the park, uh, we are envisioning a plaza, an outdoor plaza that is approximately 5,000 square feet, and that will have a circular shape to it. On the north side, uh, set into the hill, uh, will be a granite wall that will include uh, the names of our honorees, which now includes uh, almost 330 names. Mm. And this granite wall uh, will surround a pedestal, and at the uh, pedestal, we're we're having a uh, sculpture created, uh, which will be a life-size bronze sculpture that uh, uh, looks or, or has uh, three figures, and those three figures will represent a typical flight crew. I see. That sounds uh, wonderful. Uh, it's. Uh... Uh, just from you know looking at your website and seeing what the plans, I'm sure this is uh, going to be a very very nice site. Let's go into a little bit. I, I know when I did your introduction, I went into the reason why uh, you and Kevin started the memorial. But how did this really come to fruition? I mean, what was your vision for all this, and how did it come together? Uh, and was it just the crashes in 2008, or was there other things? Well, I, you know, even though uh, both Kevin and I aren't uh, in the industry anymore, uh, we both spent significant time uh, in the industry mm -hmm. uh, working for Air Methods and, and he working for Air Life and uh, always kept tabs on it. Um, it's an industry that we love. Uh, we love aviation. We love the application of aviation in terms of, of saving lives. And we have a lot of admiration for uh people who get into this line of work. And so uh, in 2008, we, we took something that we had talked about off and on over the years, and, and we decided, you know, in, in 2008, this really was the time to go ahead and, and get the movement going. And uh, so we had some discussions about what this might look like and what would we do that would match uh, the sacrifice of these individuals? Well, what could we create that really went as far as we wanted to go in terms of saying these people did something significant mm -hmm. and they needed to be recognized? Uh, so we decided that our vision was was big and grand, and we decided that we needed to see uh, how other people felt about that. Did they feel as strongly as we did? Did they want to see the same thing that we wanted to see? And through uh, the, the Facebook group, uh, the response was overwhelming. Um, there were conversations, emails, messages, phone calls that we received uh, over the last year that just said, it's about time. Hmm. We've, we've really been looking for this to happen. So it's really, when, and I, I wanted to ask you about the website, so we'll hold that thought and how you're using social media, but it, uh, I guess just this part, it was really the Facebook group then that sort of gave you the feedback to, to move ahead with this. Absolutely. Wow. 
it also gave us an opportunity to connect with people um, more quickly. Uh, You know, people would make recommendations. You need to talk to this person. You need to see this person. This other person has been trying to do, uh, you know, trying to build a comprehensive list of uh, air medical losses. And so it really allowed us to create a a larger group uh, that's making this possible. And and I wanted to go into that because I know on your website that you list the names of air medical crew members lost. Um, how have you found all those names, and are, are there still some missing? And I guess was this through assistance of the people that are on the Facebook group? In, in part, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that we noticed right off the bat when we said, okay, how many um, honorees are there out there? How, how many people would we seek to honor with this memorial? And I, I think we were taken aback a little bit that there were a number of different resources, but that they didn't always agree or they didn't always have the same information. And so we took a step back from uh, working on the memorial and trying to get support for the memorial, and we focused solely on uh, doing the research necessary to come up with that database of names. Now, one of the uh, great resources that we came across that definitely came through our social media contacts was uh, a lady by the name of Sandy Bryans, who, uh, whose daughter was lost in, uh, in Seattle back in 2005. And she had uh, just done a wonderful job of soliciting input and collecting that information. So she gave us probably our biggest jump on names that weren't readily available. Uh, So we have looked at NTSB records, FAA records, uh, newspaper archives, uh, received input through the website, uh, through Facebook, uh, we've looked at ash beams. Uh, David Kearns has been instrumental in providing us with some details, mm-hmm. and we've just we've filled in the blanks one by one. And there's a lot of gratification when you come across something during this research process uh, that says, you know, this accident was just forgotten. I mean, certainly not by the family members or the people that were close to these individuals, but for all intents and purposes. Even in this day of of uh, uh, Google searches and uh, incredible resources online, you really have a difficult time finding uh, some of these accidents. Yeah, you you wouldn't think that, and that's that's interesting. Is there a, a certain years that you're having a little bit more of a gap in, or, and how far back are you going? Well, we felt pretty comfortable with information that was. Uh, available on accidents uh, through the late 80s, 90s, and, and uh, to present. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time we, we started to feel like maybe we just needed to focus on uh, the late 60s, early 70s, we'd find that there was an accident in the 80s. So we've never taken it for granted that any time period was uh, was easier to research than another. We've treated this whole timeline uh starting in the late 60s and and said, there's got to be stuff out there. And how can we find it? How can we make sure that we are getting all the information that we can? Can visitors to the website, you know, if they, if it's their family member or, or, you know, fellow crew member, can they upload information, pictures, memorial statements? Absolutely. In fact, Mm -hmm. one of the, uh, the goals is to, 
really solicit information from our visitors and people who are interested. Um, do we have the spelling correctly? Do we have titles correctly? Do we have the details correctly? So at every point um, in the website, we have a link that says uh, submit information, submit corrections, additions. And uh, that form that you come to allows you to make corrections to information that we have or supply us with additional information. And this uh, little link in that form has actually provided us with invaluable information. Uh, in fact, this morning I received um, probably the first submission that I've received in, in several weeks, and it was about a flight paramedic that passed away in the 90s that we did not have in our, our database. <clears throat> so our goal uh, is to really make that as complete as possible um, before we get to the point where we're going to say, engrave this in a wall. Mm -hmm. are, now, it, is it only uh, crash victims, or are there other folks from the industry community that are honored? Uh, it is people who um, have uh, perished uh, while uh, committing a rescue or an uh, evacuation. And uh, this does include individuals who maybe weren't necessarily involved in an air accident, but um, uh, for instance, the uh, flight paramedic that lost his life um, walking into rotor blades uh, in, in Phoenix in the last couple of years. I see. So definitely it's, it's, uh, it's not just the flight aspect of a rescue that is inherently dangerous. It's, it's a number of other things. So we do sure. include those. So well. like in the line of duty? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And are inductees only from the United States, or are you including other crash victims from around the world? Uh, we started off just focusing on uh, national losses, uh, and we have strived to build that database uh, to be complete and, and accurate, uh, just honoring uh, national uh, losses. But uh, recently there has been some discussion or some interest uh, from other groups to potentially make this an international uh, memorial. And I think uh, we, we have to talk to uh, the right people and kind of work through the details of, of how can we do this. Mm -hmm. You know, with the availability of, of information here in the United States, it's been difficult. Um, and I think trying to tackle that internationally would really be difficult. Uh, but certainly not impossible. So that is something that you're looking at? Uh, definitely. Okay. Well, let's talk about fundraising. I know that uh, this memorial, you have a, I know a fundraising goal, but can you tell us, you know, how you are raising funds for the memorial and how can members of the air medical community and in industry help in this effort? Well, that's a great question. We uh, have a number of campaigns currently running, and then campaigns that uh, we will roll out over time uh, to make sure that people see the progress that we're making, uh, that they are always aware of uh, the fact that we're out here, that we're raising money and that we're making progress. Uh, we launched back in uh, early this year the 10 in 10 campaign, which is uh, asking individuals to donate 10 cents per honorary name or $33. And we've had a lot of success with that online. Um, it, it's a small number. It, it puts it in perspective. Um, you know, 10 cents isn't a lot, but we have a lot of people to recognize here 
and thirty-three dollars, I think, is a is a reasonable um, uh, donation to ask for. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also selling uh, T-shirts online. Uh, we call them the Building Crew T-shirts because they have across the back that uh, you're part of a building crew uh, when you're supporting our, uh, our fundraising efforts. And then uh, we're going to launch uh, shortly a program called 301K, which is uh, being headed up by uh, Suzanne Ryan, uh, our fundraising and special events officer. And what Suzanne will be doing is looking for volunteers to step forward and say, uh, I'm one of 30 individuals who is volunteering to raise $1,000. And the 301K group uh, really will be used in a number of ways. They uh, will also be a vehicle to uh, getting our message out, letting people know about our progress, uh, letting people know about our new campaigns, and uh, will probably allow us to reach people that we don't currently reach uh, through some of our current efforts. Mm-hmm. Now, their first project will be an online auction in which uh, each individual will be soliciting um, goods of any sort that that can be auctioned uh, online. Are you going after larger corporate sponsors or individuals or or both? Absolutely. Um, We have uh, kind of a a dual effort. Uh, We have Mm -hmm. a certain uh, segment of the group dedicated solely to creating awareness and getting support on the individual level. Uh, But then there's another... uh, segment of the group that's focused entirely on communicating and identifying uh, potential large gift donors. And uh, we're in discussions right now with a couple of uh, organizations related to the industry uh, who are interested in uh, providing us with direct donations or having us participate in their grant programs. Mm -hmm. Have you uh, um, contacted the Medevac Foundation International? I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, good friends with Dustin. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we speak often, and uh, Dustin is just a, a tremendous supporter of, of this concept since uh, we really started to make noise with it a year ago. Yes. And uh, uh, Dustin and I uh, will be working together on, on fundraising separately as uh, part of the Family Grant Fund. Yes. Okay. Tell us about the board of directors of the Air Medical Memorial. Um, how were they chosen? And I noticed from the website that you're looking for additional liaison positions. Okay. Well, uh, what we did was uh, use the Facebook group to uh, solicit volunteers. Uh, and we sent out messages just saying, this is what we're trying to accomplish. If you are interested in volunteering, you know, please contact me. And at that point... I had roughly identified, uh, you know, just a a core group of positions that we needed to fill. And the response uh, was wonderful. We had uh, probably a dozen folks step forward, ask more questions, and uh, had a a secondary group of people really say, okay, I want this position and I can do it well because I've done this before and this is uh, very personal to me because X. And in many cases, that was uh, somebody who had lost a family member, uh, coworkers, uh, or friends to an air medical accident. And so uh, the board right now is made up of 
six individuals. You know, we've all been touched in one way or another by an accident. Uh, feel very passionate about this. Uh, and we do have some additional positions uh, that, that need to be filled uh, in terms of liaisons. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, the idea behind the liaison position is to really uh, have some of the uh, industry associations actively participate in the development of the memorial. So uh, primarily this is designed as a, uh, a benefit to family members, um, but secondarily uh, the industry, uh, you know, anytime you have a coworker who goes down in one of these accidents, it's, it's as close to family as you can feel. Well, and it's, I, you know, I think for the crew members too, I know having been through when I was at Duke University Hospital, we had a crash in October uh, 2000 where we uh, lost our pilot, John Holland. And I remember, you know, I was uh, the vice president at the hospital and, and program director, and it was you know, really important to have some type of memorial. And we'd actually even looked at a park at the crash site, but it just became not doable, you know, to do that. And so this is very nice that there is always going to be a place that, that people can go to. You know, that's a really good point. We uh, One of the motivations early on uh, to create a national memorial was uh, because the crash site for Sandy was so remote. You know, it's very difficult mm -hmm. when the site is remote or, as you mentioned, uh, if for local reasons or other reasons, you can't do a local memorial. Uh, and so this really is designed as a place that, that people can come to uh, regardless. So right. it's cer certainly not meant to uh, be a substitute for existing uh, memorials, but this is an addition to that. Right. How has the family's reaction and support been on this project? The the support from the family members has been uh, as strong as I anticipated. Um, I, I feel like, or I felt uh, going into this, that this is something very personal to them, that they would feel uh, a strong sense of, of commitment to what we were doing and uh, would step forward and, and support us, and that has been the case. Um, they don't mince words. They tell you exactly how they feel, mm -hmm. and they tell you exactly what they want to see. And thankfully, their passion uh, is in kind with ours, and uh, there haven't been any disagreements. We, we both want the same thing. Uh, people outside the industry, people who you know, fortunately have not lost a family member, uh, feel the same as, as those who have had that head closer to home. Mm -hmm. The memorial has been set up as a 501c3 or not-for-profit charitable organization. Um, I'm sure part of that reason for choosing that status is so that donations are um, tax-deductible, but tell us about the process that you went through and the steps that you had to take to obtain that status. Well, thankfully, uh, one of our, our volunteers and board members that stepped forward, uh, Keith Johnson, uh, who lost his, his brother-in-law in 2008 to an accident, uh, had experience in this area. Uh, he has worked for uh, other uh, nonprofit organizations and had been through that process. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think with his experience, that process was uh, minimized. 
I, I had anticipated that, you know, based on things I'd heard and and uh, some of the reading that I had done, that this would be a, a lengthy, arduous process. And um, the application that that Keith uh, developed, based on uh, you know conversations that we had as a group, um, and, and his experience in developing these uh, applications, uh, we we created something that only had uh, one minor revision during the review process. And we received it uh, in November of 2009, uh, and submitted in in late July. So I, I would say that that process went pretty fast. Mm -hmm. The uh, how does someone donate right now? You know, they're listening to the podcast. They're at their computers. How can they do? How can they donate? Well, if you come to our our website, uh, airmedicalmemorial.com. Um, you'll find a link that says support at the top and on the support page there's a number of different ways that you can donate. Uh, we've had people who have a figure in mind uh, just donate that amount or we do have uh, again like I said as part of the uh, 10 and 10 campaign a specific number in mind mm -hmm. uh, t-shirt sales 1995. So uh, definitely that page is going to help you no matter what. Um, if you are uh, associated with an organization or a business that is interested in uh, seeing this through to fruition, uh, there is uh, a link on there and how you can contact us and, and start that discussion as well. Okay. And I'll, I always remind listeners, but I'll have all the links in the show notes so that you can um, get to these sites. Um, are there, it, the overall fundraising goal, I'm sure you have an initial thing because there's capital expense, but uh, you know, Talk about that, but then also uh, with a large park as this is, there's going to be some ongoing maintenance too, correct? Yes. Uh, during the site selection process, we did make connections with uh, the local Parks and Recreation District. And uh, based on those initial conversations, uh, our goal is to, once this park is developed, uh, turn over the, the maintenance, which would include uh, landscaping, um, watering, mowing, uh, items like that mm -hmm. to the district. Uh, so that will help us with uh, the cost of the the memorial going forward. Uh, and so really we can focus on sustaining fundraising efforts that will help us with um, uh, adding names as necessary and creating our uh, annual induction ceremony. That's, that's wonderful that they were... Um, willing to do that? Well, you know, and it was interesting, our initial conversation with them, uh, we had talked about potentially putting the memorial in one of their parks, uh, and there was a lot of support for it, but, you know, like a lot of uh, uh, city organizations, special districts, they, they're hurting for, for cash, and said, you know, they liked what we were doing, but they just couldn't support it. Um, and so we said, well, you know, we might be creating something here, but it's at no cost to you uh, other than the maintenance. We will, in effect, be buying you a park or creating a park for you. Right. And then on existing parks, that's always tough because of the land, the multiple land uses that uh, they go through, too, you know, besides the money. Yes. Well, tell us about the website and also 
uh, I see that you're using social, or I like to call it new media, such as Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Tell us about how all that is working. Well, when we first set up the Facebook group, uh, it, it seemed back then, you know, even though it was just a year ago, that there wasn't as much of an air medical presence as there is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's huge. And uh, I give full credit to Facebook. Uh, when I first got on it, I thought, what is this? And I couldn't make sense of it <laughs> um, and, and played with it enough to say, this is really an effective tool. It's... Uh, unlike anything else that was out there. And, and really, uh, we would not be in the same position if it wasn't for uh, the access to the audience that we have uh, that, that we've gained through Facebook. Um, other tools uh, like Twitter, uh, we did start a Twitter or a tweet or a, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, <laughs> Twitter account that you tweet <laughs> out. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, that was another one of those perplexing uh, social media, new media uh, tools where we weren't quite sure how we could use it. And we started off just using it as a way to communicate within the group um, since our board members are all scattered all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then found that really a better way to do that was uh, with an internal blog. So our, our Twitter account sat idle for a while, and uh, we've just now, you know, that we, we are able to say uh, or announce such fantastic news with land donation and uh, some things that we know are, are coming up in the next several months, we said we've we got to add Twitter to the mix. Right. Uh, so that's another good way to, to follow us. Uh, LinkedIn is a, is a different animal, uh, definitely uh, more along the lines of, of career development, uh, professionals, uh, resumes, you know, completely uh, different than Facebook. And we do have a presence on LinkedIn, um, which I think is, is probably uh, gives us more connections to uh, the people that we might consider uh, for large gift donations because of their um, uh, position with existing companies uh, related to the industry. Mm-hmm. It's also a good way to make them aware because some people are on LinkedIn aren't on Facebook and then they can get over to the website or, uh, or, you know, attached to the Twitter feed too. So. Absolutely. Well, that, now, that's, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, uh, another part of your question was how, how are we using the website? And, uh, we are, are currently using the website as a means to communicate the magnitude of our, uh, our list of honorees uh, to provide to this industry uh, and the general public information about how many people have lost their lives uh, in, in this noble pursuit. And so we freely publish uh, all the information that we collect. And the goal there is you know, not only to uh, solicit input in, in revisions and changes and corrections from our visitors, but also uh, to establish a historical record. I mean, th- this is a big thing. Um, this industry has grown tremendously, uh, especially in the last several years, and has had such an impact on uh, emergency medical services in this country that, you know, it, by itself, the website is um, uh, just a wonderful tool. Mm-hmm. Stephen, I noticed on the uh, website that you also have a uh, some coding that you can create a widget or a badge that people can put on their own websites or even Facebook pages 
uh, to donate. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, at the uh, the bottom of our support page, uh, we've included uh, some HTML, simple HTML mm-hmm. code, uh, to where um, you know people who have a blog or a corporate, uh, I'm sorry, a commercial website, uh, if they wish to to put a link um, back to their medical memorial, uh, soliciting donations or just you know for for general support and awareness purposes, uh, we have included those at the bottom of the support page. Yeah. Well, another question, you know, the the National EMS Memorial uh, is in the process of moving to Colorado Springs from Roanoke and and I believe is having their first induction ceremony this June in Colorado. Um, many air medical personnel lost in crashes are honored at this service. How will the air medical memorial differ? Or how do you fit into that process? Well, one of the things that we... Uh, set out to do from the very beginning was create a memorial that was was complete and accurate. And <clears throat> we weren't sure if that would take us back uh, through the 70s, through the 60s. You know, we really didn't have a specific timeline. We really wanted to focus on uh, the beginnings of this industry and, you know, both fixed wing and helicopter operations and say, people who have taken this on and and, and unfortunately lost their lives, uh, we want to include them. And we also want to make sure that uh, if there is an accident from any point in time, uh, that every member of that flight crew who is doing the same job, taking on the same risk, is reflected in our memorial. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was really important for us to um, create, you know, not only a memorial that was complete and accurate, uh, but also make sure that uh, it was in the setting uh, that we envisioned, uh, that the, the topography of the land and the site where we put this was uh, conducive to what experience we want to create for people who come from all corners of the, of the country to, to honor somebody who is important to them. Uh, and so uh, this memorial, I think, reaches all of those goals and uh, meets the requirements that we set out to, uh, you know, from the very beginning to, to reach. Have you had contact with the folks from the National EMS Memorial? We yeah. have. Mm-hmm. Um, Janet Williams is actually a, a involved with the board uh, and a former coworker of uh, Kevin's uh, from AirLife. And uh, we have uh, discussed the potential of, of bringing the two groups together. Uh, I've, I've spoken once to uh, Kevin Dillard, and we really took a hard look at uh, did it make sense? Should we do this? And I think uh, at the outset, it, at the outset, it just seemed obvious. It seemed like there was a lot of synergy um, that it, you know, these two projects could come together. Uh, but a- after. Uh, review and discussion and, and talking to some of our uh, supporters that have been there since the beginning, there really was um, a, a sense that we should do um, air medical industry dedicated memorial. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes from, uh, and, and certainly this doesn't take anything away from, from anybody's sacrifice. I mean, anybody who's doing something to help others and unfortunately lose their, loses their life, that's uh you can't do anything higher than that. And what we um, 
have heard and, and felt in our hearts from the very beginning is that air medical operations are unique, that uh, there is something different about this. There are some inherent dangers that just make this different. And uh, we had family members that you know, stood their ground, dug their heels in and said, yeah, this is very specific. We want to see an air medical memorial. And uh, we stuck with it. And we decided with all the momentum that we had built, um, with the very specific focus that we had, with the site that we were able to uh, attain, that really uh, it seemed like the stars were aligned. I see. Are you planning on having induction ceremonies also? We are, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, tentatively, we are planning on uh, making that a June event every year. Um, nothing would make us happier than to be able to say we have no new inductees this year. Right. Um, Absolutely. But uh, right now, uh, as necessary, we're planning on adding names to the wall uh, in a June ceremony. Okay. Well, Stephen, this uh, sounds like a a, a full-time job with everything that that you're doing. Uh, How much of your time is being taken up with with this? I know it's a labor of love for you. It is a labor of love. um, And... You know, there's a lot of satisfaction in what we're doing, the people that we're contacting, uh, knowing that this is going to happen, uh, that it it went from, you know, a, a notion to an idea to something very significant. And, uh, you know, for us to be able to to take a look, to stand back and take a look at what we've created and see the response from... Uh, family members and, and people who lost somebody very near and dear to them, uh, it, it's it's going to be incredible. Uh, so it, it it definitely takes more time than I probably uh, would have wanted to, to give, at least initially. Um, but when you, you look at what you're doing and you see the importance of it, it really does help. Mm-hmm. Now, my wife might disagree. She, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Certainly has has seen me put in uh, a significant amount of time, but at the same time, um, you know, looking at the group of people that we've put together, uh, our board members just are, are tireless. Uh, they keep pushing this. They keep coming up with great ideas. Uh, they keep telling everybody about this. Uh, the group is getting bigger. The circle is getting bigger. And uh, so when you're in such good company and you see other people working as hard as you are, it, it does make it a lot easier. Right. And I'm, and I'm sure your brother, Kevin, puts in a lot of time himself. Absolutely. Right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners about the Air Medical Memorial? Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, we're certainly grateful for this opportunity to get our message out. Um, we encourage anybody to contact us with any questions, uh, any concerns, any ideas, any ways to make improvements. This really is a, a collaborative effort. And so um, I, anybody who, who feels this in their heart definitely needs to step up and say, I want to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the really neat things that we didn't get a chance to cover is uh, a friend of mine that's an independent filmmaker has uh, stepped forward and volunteered to to make a, a movie, a short 
that would uh, be dedicated to the individuals that, that we're honoring with this memorial. And so uh, one of the other ways that people can get involved is, is not just financial support, but uh, certainly anybody who has um, memories, photographs, um, uh, maybe a video clip of them reminiscing about somebody that they lost to an air medical accident, uh, they can certainly uh, submit that to us, and we're going to uh, create a very thoughtful uh, um, movie that you know, we'll, we'll go a step further. Um, when you take a look at the website, you see uh, locations and dates and names, and that has a lot of meaning. But when you start to attach photographs and uh, sentiment to that, it, it really takes it to a whole other level. It, it right. really does pull at your heart. Uh, so I would definitely encourage uh, anybody who would like to see um, somebody honored in that way, please, you know, feel free to get a hold of us. That's great. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the podcast and the and the best of luck as you move this important project forward. And congratulations again on attaining uh, the land and making this all closer to reality. Oh, absolutely. And and thank you again for uh, this opportunity. This this is uh, uh, so different than, than print uh, or any other way that we can get our message out. So, uh, thank you for stepping forward and allowing us to uh, to talk a little bit about this today. Yeah, glad to do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and the Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Please continue to keep your thoughts and prayers with the crew, family members, and friends of the Hospital Wing Air Medical Program after their tragic crash last week. Take care and fly safe. Music